This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 28th of August 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from the Dory House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today, our regular guest, Terry Stiastony, will be here to go through the newspapers with me. Plus... Talking of TV, we've just had one of those office moments where it transpires that lots of us have latched onto the same show at the same time. White Lotus. Oh, me too. I love White Lotus. But it's probably far too quotidian for Andrew Muller, who'll be here to give us his reflections on the week that was. So do stay with us for Monocle on Saturday here on Monocle 24. Western forces running the Afghan airlift are bracing for more attacks after the United States launched a drone strike apparently killing an Islamic State planner two days after the group claimed a deadly bombing outside the Kabul airport that may have killed as many as 170 people, including 13 US troops. The number of coronavirus patients in US hospitals has breached 100,000, the highest level in eight months, according to the Department of Health and Human Services, as a resurgence of COVID-19 spurred by the highly contagious Delta variant strains the nation's healthcare system. A California review board has recommended that Sirhan Sirhan, the Palestinian refugee serving a life sentence for assassinating U.S. presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, be released from prison on parole. And in the Monocle Minute Weekend Edition, discover how a Twitter font tweak gave users headaches and how a plucky New England newspaper came to be regarded as one of the world's best, plus how Charlie Watt's classic car collection has remained unusually pristine and Austrian design leader Lily Hollein shares her weekend reading list. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's time now to look at some of that news in more detail. I'm joined by Terry Stiastini, who's a political journalist and an author. Good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. Uh, It's quite hard to be perky looking at the news uh, today and indeed for for the last few weeks. Afghanistan is obviously dominating all of the front pages. It's just the, the most terrible story. Yes, it is really. Um, and many of the front pages have been uh, updated overnight when you look at uh, the news website. So a lot of them have been looking back at the, the events of the last week. Uh, one headline here talking about the lethal race to quit Kabul and escape from Afghanistan. But the most recent news that's now featuring is, is uh, the US launching an, this airstrike against an ISIS-K target in eastern Afghanistan. Um, the Times here says that an unmanned reaper drone which took off from the Middle East hit a specific member of ISIS-K while he was in a car with another Islamic State associate and that both of those have, have been um, believed to have been killed. Uh, so this described this as an attack launched from a third country. And this is obviously, uh, you know, following up on what Joe Biden said after the suicide bomb attack that killed uh, US Marines and so many of the other people, uh, Afghans waiting outside uh, Kabul airport that, you know, he said that there would... Uh, be you know be repercussions from that um and so they're saying the u.s military saying that they believe they've killed this target they believe they don't know of any uh civilian casualties but the trouble is of course that 
you know, this is not finished, that the US is now trying to get, still try to get people out. Many countries now saying that they haven't been able, aren't able to get any more um, people out of the UK and uh, out of the Afghanistan, sorry, to, to, other, con- to other countries. Um, and just, you know, the terrible, terrible situation that is left behind. Yeah, it's an, an appalling situation. And there's a sort of horrible irony to it. And if you remember after 9-11, uh, the, the whole uh, when when the conflict in Afghanistan when the US went into Afghanistan uh, it was about revenge and then here's Biden once again swearing revenge uh, and it's kind of as if we're back to the starting point well yes there is there, there's a strange tone to to what um, Biden has been saying you know one of the the initial statements that he said he said oh well we didn't go in there to do nation building and, and building democracy and I think many people certainly people who've been working on the ground precisely trying to do nation building NGOs and other people and of course Afghans themselves have been trying to rebuild a different kind of a country from the one under the Taliban and now they seem to be back to square one and you know the Taliban saying things you know they, they may claim that they've changed but they're still saying things such as you know music is going to be banned from and so on and, and you know women won't be allowed to walk the streets not uh, unaccompanied by a man and so you know these were things that we went into Afghanistan to try to change and you know we don't seem to have succeeded in changing them and your thoughts have got to be with with the people of Afghanistan whether they're staying or whether they're leaving yeah and and where are they going to go I mean that's the other thing is that there are um, we know that the US can uh, is going to accommodate 50,000 people they say across military bases in in the US here in Britain it's 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 the entire population of a, of a town yes and they're saying that at about the about 15,000 people believed uh, to to be coming to the UK which as they say is the size of a you know, a small town in, in Wales or somewhere or a small town in England. And one of the things that the government will have to think about is obviously, uh, you know, how people can be accommodated, where they will live, um, what they will do, how quickly those asylum claims will be processed, because a lot often that is one of the things that takes uh, a very long time to do. And certainly these are all, you know, people who have worked alongside British people. Many of them are things like interpreters and stuff. There are certainly people who will want to work and want to make a, a new life for themselves. And the question is... Um, how easy that's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, there is actually, I just wanted to point out a a, a great website here in Britain. It's in fact the the, the UK government website, but there is a section on it uh, appealing for help for uh, Afghanistan uh, refugees. And you can actually sign up and say what it is you can provide, if you can provide work, if you can provide accommodation uh, and and various things like that. And it's it's, um, it's, it's a way for for people here who, who feel very much affected by this to actually do something positive, which I think is is a wonderful thing. Uh, and just before we move on, I wanted to uh, tell you about uh, Meet the Writers This Week with Safraz Manzoor. Uh, his book is called They, and it's an investigation of what white British and Muslims, Muslim British, get wrong about each other. Uh, and I think just in light of you know the, the Taliban using religion as as a as a means of ju- justifying what they do, it's very interesting interesting to look at what he believes Islam really means uh, and uh, you know it's a really really great book and a a great examination of something that I think is very very important so that's coming up later this afternoon and of course you can always download it from our website at any time. Right I think it's time to move on and hear from our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck.
Another trip to the theatre this week. Halfway through a key scene, a man who could not have booked a more central seat stands up and proceeds to ask some 15 people to also rise so that he can get out. Not great, but if nature is banging on the door, you can just about empathise. But two minutes later, he's back, and instead of waiting for the interval, he impatiently demands the same process in reverse, triggering a miniature Mexican wave as everybody clambers to their feet again. Then, 15 minutes later, another man does the same thing. And during the show, two phones ring. Is this a lockdown hangover that people in the theatre now behave as they would sitting on their sofas watching Netflix? I'm only surprised that nobody gets pizza delivered or paints their toenails. Although, talking of TV, we've just had one of those office moments where it transpires that lots of us have latched on to the same show at the same time. White Lotus. Written and produced by Mike White, it's a darkly satirical comedy from HBO about a group of people staying and working at a hotel in Hawaii, and it's snappy, just six episodes. Murray Bartlett plays Armand, the hotel manager, about to spin out of control. Jennifer Coolidge is dynamite as hotel guest Tanya. Indeed, the casting throughout is wonderful. But what's interesting is that, like Netflix's The Chair, written by Amanda Peet with Sandra Oh as the lead, you are seeing TV and comedy trying to find ways of making fun of so-called wokeness and cancel culture, yet while not being stupidly offensive in doing so either. In White Lotus, for example, character Olivia Mossbacher is the daughter who taunts her parents about their wealth and white privilege and reads every politically correct book that she can lay her hands on, but who, in the end, is really no different to them. And in The Chair, a story about an English department at a US university, you take one look at the students trying to catch out their teachers and thank the heavens that you're not clever enough to be an academic. Yet, you empathise with the women who are after change. A revival of satire, the spoofing of our excesses, can only be a good thing as we fumble through these times. On my neighbourhood's social media notice board, someone is looking for a dog walker. Seems they're having a hard time finding one. The dog's name may have something to do with the problem. Mayhem. TV shows such as Succession brought to the fore the role of the costume designer, and White Lotus does the same. Alex Beauvaird put together all of the characters' looks, reflecting that uneasy vibe around many wealthy people when they head to the beach. How to stay looking rich if they've only got their swimwear on. Cue a Goyard bag for your holiday novel and sunscreen, a high heel over flip-flops, and box-fresh Ralph Lauren polos. Although, as a viewer, it's disconcerting as you watch a character who is there to be despised and wonder where his clothes are from. In White Lotus, self-obsessed jock Shane Patton has very good bathers that almost made me wish for a QR code call to action. To make me feel better, a friend on a magazine here in the UK tells me that when they ran a story about a woman's years of battling depression, she got an email from a reader inquiring where the poor depressive had bought the sofa that she'd been photographed sitting on. But sunnier things. This week we held a party at Midori House for new readers, old friends, diplomats, staff, 
and our commercial partners. For many, it was the first big event that they'd been to, and the spirit was joyous. It was like things used to be. To such an extent that, at midnight, I found myself in a karaoke bar, duetting with a colleague to Elton John and Kiki D's Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Yes, I was Kiki. P.S. The Monocle Quality of Life conference is in Athens this year, and it will be a great place to meet other interesting Monocle readers and listeners, hear from 25 amazing speakers, catch up with all of us, and get a unique perspective on life in Athens. It promises end of summer sun, fresh debate, and new horizons that will set you up for the year ahead. And I promise, there will be no Nana Muscuri karaoke covers from me. Although, I am partial to the White Rose of Athens. Hmm, would that be too much? Yup, too much, Andrew. <laughs> um, he mentions that uh, he went off to a karaoke bar after the, the party this week. Now, you and I were both at that party, Terry, and but you completely ruined it for me because <laughs> you, halfway through the evening, you said to me, oh, I, I better go soon because I'm uh, on The Globalist in the morning, at which point I remembered that I was, in fact, presenting The Globalist. <laughs> I'm never going to live this down. No, <laughs> no, no. No, no. We should have it. gone out and done karaoke, carried straight on through, come back into the studio. That's Absolutely. Gosh, next those time. were the days. One, <laughs> once upon a time, that would have been my reality, but... Uh, uh, sadly, sadly, not not so good these days on, on that kind of thing. Now, Andrew was talking about White Lotus and you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet, no. I said, by the sounds of it, I do need to see it. You absolutely do need to see it. I mean, it is in all of the papers today. Uh, everybody's talking uh, about it because it's only just hit Britain. Of course, it, it, it was uh, in the States first. Um, the FT has an interesting piece about how it came about. Yes, that's right. They feature um, Mike White, who we were just hearing about, the, uh, the script writer was sort of showing runner um, as their person in the news in the Saturday uh, FT this week and it, yeah it's fascinating how this came about so, um, so as this they call it you know the summer's breakout TV hit in the US it says it was born out of desperation uh, with the pandemic shutting down much of HBO's production schedule it says the network approached the writer director Mike White and asked him if he had any ideas that could be turned into a show very quickly so they said they needed speed and simplicity uh, the program had to be set in just one Covid bubbleable location so so this is why they've got uh, the ho- a hotel as a location. But it said, White got to work on the script in August. Filming began on location at the Four Seasons Maui in Hawaii just two months later. So he had this reputation for being able to knock something out that is not only speedy, but obviously very good and, and very successful um, as well. But I, I didn't know much about Mike White, but as you read through this, um, he was a person who first gained notice uh, for writing, so he wrote things like School of Rock in um, 2003, the, the Jack Black film, um, um, he had this early burst of success, but then it said he hit a wall. Um, and in 2004, he had a breakdown while working on a show that wasn't going well. Uh, he ended up in a psychiatric hospital. His show was cancelled. He said he felt weak and lost like a screw-up. And at the same time coming out of it, I felt like I'd been given a huge gift. So he carried on not only writing, directing, acting, um, and then sort of came back and is now obviously uh, massively successful. And uh, they've announced that there's going to be a second instalment of The White Lotus setting off speculation about where it will be set and whether whether any of the season's characters will return. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one car- um, actually, if I say this, I, it's, <laughs> it's a spoiler. A spoiler. <laughs> so I'm I'm not I'm not going to say that. Uh, <laughs> 
It, it's pretty obvious from the beginning one character isn't going to return, but I won't <laughs> say who it is. Um, uh, it, as I say, it's in most of the papers. The New Yorker has a has a lovely long uh, read on it, um, and uh, I, I love the, um, the the quote. It says that the hotel manager Armand says that uh, he tells his assistant to make each guest feel like the special chosen baby child of the hotel, <laughs> <laughs> and it is a little bit. It's kind of like upstairs, downstairs, mm. but set in Hawaii. Kind of. I mean, there there are so many odd comparisons that you can make, but that's at least is one one thing that the New Yorker says. Now that character Armand is um, played by uh, Murray Bartlett, who is an Australian. He is absolutely brilliant in it. And I think on that note, we should listen to another brilliant Australian. <laughs> Here's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that Brexit Britain's descent into self-parody might yet have further depths to hurtle. Amid a round of appointments of UK trade envoys empowered to advance the interests of British business around the world, we learned that Australia had been assigned Ian Botham. He's out. LBW. For the benefit of listeners in the non-cricket-playing world to whom that clip will make no sense whatsoever, it was dropped in to illuminate that the primary reason for Ian Botham's notoriety is not any formal or indeed informal credentials vis-à-vis international trade, but his prowess as an England cricketer circa 1977 to 1992. 5,200 runs in test matches at an average of 33.54, 383 wickets at around 28, to help. We learned of Botham's bewildering new appointment from the UK's International Trade Secretary Liz Truss, who announced that Botham, who is already a lord for some reason, would bat for British business down under. Well, quite. What we mostly learn from this is that Truss's grasp of Anglo-Australian relations may be somewhat shaky. There is no cohort of people that Australians detest quite so venomously as English cricketers, with particular blind, furious loathing reserved for the good ones. A great innings by Ian Botham. Righto, don't rub it in. We learned anyway that any trade envoying Lord Botham may wish to do any time soon will have to be done remotely, as we learned that Australia's acceleratingly hardcore response to the COVID-19 pandemic had taken another step closer to daubing scarlet crosses upon the front doors of afflicted households. Nine News can reveal COVID-19 quarantine signs must now be placed on the front doors of homes in South Australia. The lifeless streets of Adelaide, near silent and all but empty, the only Sound, the morose hum of streetlights, the wistful twittering of birds, the forlorn howl of a lonely wind. And now there's a pandemic as well. Come on, you'd have been disappointed if we hadn't. We learned of a further rebuke to the ambitions of Global Britain from the unlikely source of the 27th Universal Postal Union Congress currently occurring in Abidjan. Delegates thereat resolved to cease recognising stamps marked British Indian Ocean Territory, aka the Chagos Islands. The archipelago is the centre of an interminable diplomatic spat, the short version of which is that pretty much everyone thinks Britain should give the islands back to Mauritius, and Britain doesn't want to. 
We learned that from here on, post two and from the Chagos Islands will only be conveyed if adorned with stamps from Mauritius. And it looks very much that for Britain, flatly will get them nowhere. <laughs> Whatever. We will be needing at this time a sound effect denoting a 180 degree handbrake skid segueing smoothly straight back into the theme from test match special with which we kicked proceedings off. Because, returning to the subject of cricket, we learned that amid the general unravelling in Afghanistan, the Taliban, not hitherto known as sport or indeed anything lovers, had made time to meet with the captain of Afghanistan's national cricket team, Hashmatullah Shahidi, shortly due to lead the side in a one-day series against Pakistan. We learned that the discussions were apparently productive. Here is the Taliban's communique read by Monocle 24's cricket desk chief, Emma Searle. A member of the political bureau of the Islamic Emirate met with the captain of the national cricket team. They talked about future programs and ways to improve the team's athletic performance and level. Certainly the Taliban might have considerable wisdom to impart about digging in to grind out a result against superior opposition. And we learned of a terrible, tragic schism splitting Trump world. We learned, first of all, that... Do we have a grudging credit where due sound effect? Mmm. Yeah. Mmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. if you like. We learned, first of all, that former US President Benito Cartman had been doing the reading, or doing the being read to, about whose voter base was being depleted by COVID-19 vaccine refusal, and accordingly encouraged a herd of hooting yokels in Alabama to report for their jabs. I recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got... No, that's okay. But we learned with the sorrow which always attends the sundering of a beautiful friendship that this had played badly with one of Trump's most ardent cheerleaders, foghorn-throated, foil-hatted fulminator Alex Jones, host of dingbat conspiracy outlet Infowars. And, you know, we like you, but my God, maybe you're not that bright. Maybe Trump's actually a dumbass. All right, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Join us, Alex, you big weirdo. Join us. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. I think that might be my karaoke song. Do you have California. a karaoke? Yeah. I haven't done karaoke in years, but maybe, you know. Yeah. That's a good one, I'm... though, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, now, talking about, you know, what Trump's been saying about the vaccine and all the rest of it, there do seem to be a huge amount of vaccine deniers, particularly uh, in the United States. And that's something that's that's covered. In fact, Corona, of course, is the other story that is everywhere in the papers today. Yes. I mean, all, all over the world. I mean, we were just hearing uh, from Andrew about uh, Australia. And there's quite an interesting piece here in The Guardian talking about why is Australia so far behind on not only administering vaccines but making its own mRNA vaccine. So it's uh, pointing out here that from they're not going to get their first doses of the Moderna vaccine uh, in Australia until September um, and they're calling it uh, Australia's notoriously sluggish vaccine rollout and then uh, asking the question in this article why uh, Australia's biotech sector hasn't done more to start making its own vaccines as well as uh, getting hold of, of ones that are um, 
they're manufactured elsewhere elsewhere in the country. Uh, and somebody here saying uh, that given that our biotech sector in Australia is fairly small to start with, there was no commercial appetite to jump into something that was as yet unproven uh, at that point. And they say uh, only in May, in only May, they started, uh, the government started a new approach calling on bids for people to start trying to manufacture vaccines. So they're saying this could, you know, be a really, really long time before uh, Australia was able to make it make its own vaccines as well as start as well as importing them from the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, good news from India, though, where they are making their own vaccine. And as we know, India is the, the place where many, many other vaccines are made. I think it's the highest vaccine producer in the world. And now that they can make this this vaccine against uh, COVID-19, that, that's very health, hopeful news. Yes, it is. It is just to get the vaccines to, to the rest of the world. I mean, one of the problems they have had is having uh, the EU recognise those vaccines as being essentially the same things as the, those same vaccines which are which are being manufactured uh, within Europe. Though obviously, you know, they use the same technology. They are parts of the same companies in some cases. So it's getting, you know, getting the right vaccines to the, to the people who need it and getting them all recognised as, as valid. Mm. Um, and the World Health Organization, of course, said this week that uh, people should hold off having a, a booster and instead give first doses to everywhere everywhere else. Yes, and one of the things that is um, being picked up also in the UK papers is this debate at the moment about uh, when and whether to vaccinate uh, younger, so children and teenagers. So this is interesting here in the Times. It says Sajid Javid, the, the relatively new health secretary, says COVID jabs for younger pupils are ready and waiting. So they've said that these... Um, you know, many countries, uh, for instance, like the US, France, Germany, are vaccinating uh, teenagers already. And there's been a certain level of debate as, you know, should children have the vaccine ahead of many, say, people in, in the rest of the world that haven't been able to have that yet? Um, but the health secretary saying offering all teenagers a coronavirus jab will solidify our wall of protection. Uh, and he's been described by the Times as piling pressure on scientists to give the go ahead and have a sort of a rapid rollout of vaccinations once uh, children go back to school because as other um, the other papers pointing out the guardian here uh, that ministers are should be planning for a huge rise in covid cases as schools return so schools going back either sort of the end of next week um, or, or during during this week in 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 england and you know there is a big question about whether that's going to see uh, a sudden rise in cases and they're saying in scotland they've already seen um, that because schools go back there already that have there is a role in you know ca- cases going up as well so you know this question of should they should they start doing this these vaccinations um, once once children are back to school? And there's quite a big pushback from many parents. Well, yes, that is that is the question. I mean, people are questioning whether this is you know it's the risk benefit you know trade off you know is what is what is the risk to to younger children? I mean, sixteen year olds and up can already um, have their vaccination, but as many people point out, that there is still you know although they are less likely to have severe symptoms, there is still uh, a possibility of that. And but then and then of course there's the worries about having another year of disruption to to education, and you know so many children over the last couple of years have missed lots of school already and you know you don't want to see uh, that happening again this year yeah uh, interesting story out of canada where justin trudeau was forced to cancel an, ele- an election rally uh, after a crowd of angry protesters ambushed the event and these are people again who are um uh, really protesting against the way that that the the um, pandemic has been handled there um 
so uh, bad bad for him because, of course, he's called a, a snap election. Uh, so just before we go, Terry, you've got young-ish children. Would you be in favour? Uh, I think I would, yes. I have one uh, son who is kind of rising 16 and will be able to have, as things stand, the vaccine uh, at the moment. Um, but having seen, uh, having seen friends in other countries, uh, talking to people from Germany, uh, friends in the States, uh, numbers of numbers of children there who seem to have had the jab. And I just, I, you know, my fairly unscientific feeling is that were there huge levels of risk uh, for teenagers, we would have heard more about it uh, from, from other countries in the world at the moment. And I think, uh, yeah, given the disruption to education and, and, you know, what seems to be a safe vaccine, I would be happy for that. Absolutely. Uh, Terry, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Uh, thanks to our studio engineer, Sam Impey, uh, with uh, able assistance from Julian. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Saturday returns next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.